indeed a privilege for Catherine and myself to be here. Welcome to the neighborhood. Maybe some of you read the sign outside. If you didn't, you'll need to go read it. Uh, Mr. Rogers is alive and well. Good to be with you. It's just a privilege for Catherine and I to always uh, have the opportunity to be here. We don't always feel like we're really that far away since the nice office is just across the, the parking lot there, but it's nice to be back with you. Uh, we're on the road uh, frequently, and we just uh, appreciate uh, being here. Thank you for your prayers and your, your resources, your, uh, your, just your gracious spirit uh, to us, uh, uh, both of us and to uh, NICE. I do want to ask your prayer for a couple different things. Number one, would you pray for our newest NICE missionary family, the Lundgrens? Uh, this day, they are in Idaho at Valley Bible Church to uh, pastor and to be installed as their pastor and preach the first sermon. And we appreciate that young family, six kids. Uh, we just uh, love them and uh, excited to have them with us. Also pray for our missionary uh, in training candidates, Brenton and Kelsey Scotts, uh, as they uh, maneuver through a few different things uh, and Lord willing, uh, end up in the ministry somewhere. Uh, we appreciate that. And then lastly, pray for our... NICE 60th anniversary coming up almost a month from today. Uh, we will be bringing all of, as many of our NIC missionaries together and our IFCA uh, regionals from two regionals to celebrate the faithfulness of God in Yakima, Washington these past 60 years. And so we just ask you to pray for us. We are almost to our goal of raising enough money to uh, bring all of those NIC missionaries that come at no expense to them. Thankfully, uh, we are just a privilege to have those individuals and churches that have uh, donated toward that, and uh, we are looking forward to a great day uh, that'll be there for actually three days. Uh, we'll kick it off on Monday evening with Dr. Roy Sprague, myself, and Reverend Earl Brubaker uh, preaching 15 minutes each. I tell people, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you in the Sahara Desert. So... Uh, and then we have Dr. Richard Gregory, who uh, one of our ISA brethren is going to be our main speaker. Uh, Richard Vargas, who is our new uh, executive, IFC executive director designate, will be here. He is taking over for Les Lofquist, uh, who will be stepping down in uh, a little less than a year now. So things are happening in IFC and NICE, and we're just appreciative of what, uh, what God is doing. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1. I would like you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Six verses. While I do have the ESV, I'm going to give it to you in the New American Standard because that's what I memorized it in. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree that is firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the, they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous or congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you this morning that you've allowed us to be together, that we might open uh, the word of God together. Lord, we just ask that you might just guide my lips, that you would uh, move me out of the way, that the spirit of God might have reign in the word of God today. 
and that hearts would be touched, that mine as well as uh, these that are here today, that, uh, Father, that you would indeed uh, work mightily, uh, that in, uh, as this scripture just goes forth, uh, that it would do its work. And Lord, we thank you. Quiet our spirits now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You uh, may be seated. Psalm chapter one. It is an interesting psalm. But I want to start this way. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that uh, people are trying to find all sorts of things and uh, perhaps even ways that would make them happy? And have you noticed that lately? Um, one article in Psychology Today, which is, by the way, not one of my top magazines for bedtime reading, but an interesting article nonetheless that came out of there, uh, let out with this caption, and I quote, happiness and emotional fulfillment are within your grasp, unquote. Didn't know if you knew that, but psychology today, that's got to be truth, right? Happiness is right there to get a hold of. The report went on to mention, and I quote, 10 steps you can take to increase your joy desire and bring more happiness into your life. Here they are. Check them off your list. Number one, be with others who make you smile. That will do it. That'll bring happiness. Number two, hold to your values. Not a bad thing. Number three, accept the good. Number four, imagine the best. Number five, do things you love. Number six says to find a purpose. Number seven says listen to your heart. That could get you in trouble rather than make you happy. Number eight, push yourself, not others. I don't know, that makes me happy to push others. I don't know, but. <laughs> number nine, be open to change. And number 10, just bask in the simple pleasures. On the other hand, in another article titled, and I quote, how to be happy, 11 ways to find true happiness. The author suggests this, and I quote, most people spend their lives waiting for happiness. They cling to the idea that as soon as they get that job, as soon as they lose those few pounds, as soon as they're in a great relationship, then, then the gates will open and happiness will come rushing through, unquote. But the author also offers, in order to find true happiness in life, you need to work on yourself. Make a few adjustments the, the way you live your life. These tweaks are actually pretty simple, and if you do it right, here's the key, if you do it right, you will attain the kind of genuine happiness most people spend their lives pursuing. Now, I couldn't help but think through a number of those thoughts and then, uh, you know, doing a little internet search because I, I just thought it would be interesting to find out what kind of quotes on happiness are out there. There's quotes, you know, you can stick on your refrigerator and they'll just stay with you forever. Things like, we interrupt your happiness to bring you Monday. Your regularly scheduled happiness will resume on Friday. I don't know what happens in between, but there you go. It was Helen Keller, the uh, blind gal that once said, make someone happy, then you'll be happy too. Many persons have the wrong idea of what constitutes true happiness. It is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, happiness is a perfume you cannot pour on others without getting a few drops on yourself. It was our famous president, Abraham Lincoln, that once said, folks are usually about as happy 
as they make their minds up to be. Now, some of that's not bad. Some of that's not really all that bad. But I say all of that for this reason, that to the world in general, happiness is based on emotions and situations that are going well. And if they aren't going well, just make them go well, and then you'll be happy. That's kind of the whole thought. That, that's how the, the world operates. For the most part, the internal, that deep down satisfaction or what we might call the peace and joy and well-being inside of us, in spite of the circumstances, folks, is rare. It really is. And if you can't find this type of person in the world, you ought to at least find them in one place, and that is the local church. Those that would show and exhibit an attitude and a deep down satisfaction that outside of myself, somebody else is in control of all things, and I can have that rare thing called joy and happiness. Now this morning, we're gonna discover that the righteous or the godly person who is fully blessed finds true happiness, and I use that word on purpose, you'll see here in a moment, not only in what he doesn't do, but he finds that happiness in what he does do. And we're gonna look at that. However, as we come to Psalm 1, because it's probably been a while maybe, I wanna lay a short background to this psalm for you. Psalm 1 is really not the first psalm that was written. It was organized that way and put in our Bibles that way, but it was not the first psalm written and given down. Nor do we have an author attached to this psalm. Some believe David wrote it, but there's no indication who actually wrote the psalm. There are many that disagree that David wrote it, but that's for another time. Interestingly enough, Psalm 1 and 2 have a very close connection if you read them back to back, which we don't have time today. Uh, psalm 1 uh, is really kind of unique in that it forms at least a couple triple triplets, we might say. Joseph Alexander has noted these words, and I quote, the structure of the first psalm is symmetrical, but simple. And the style removed for, from that elevated prose by nothing but the use of strong and lively figures. That's why when you read Psalm 1, you get a lot of images that flow from it. And it's really interesting to see the images that these six verses give you in such a short amount of time. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I would like to have us think through the subject of sharpening our focus on true happiness, what the Bible says about happiness. And we're gonna view four actions of the godly man in Psalm 1. So first, we wanna view what the godly man rejects in verse 1. What the godly man rejects. Notice again, the Bible says, and I'll read out of the ESV, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Now, before describing what a godly man refuses or what he gives the thumbs down to, the author notes his condition, and we, we need to just take time and look at that for a moment. Notice he says he is blessed. He is blessed. A blessed man, generic term, could be a blessed a woman, blessed man, blessed child, but he is a blessed person. The Hebrew conveys someone who is privileged or, yes, happy or fortunate. 
It is really the heightened state of happiness and joy according to the Hebrew language. It's not happiness based on, as I said earlier, the things we conjure up that will make us emotionally feel good. That's not what it's all about. Matter of fact, it's interesting that if you go to the New Testament, the equivalent of this is in Matthew 5, where we have what? The Beatitudes. Blessed is. And over and over, Jesus talked about that. This word is used in the Old Testament in numerous different places, such as Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. When I started thinking through that verse, uh, I found it very interesting as to why Israel was blessed, why Israel could be fortunate and happy and joyful. And there's some things that the, that the author lets us know about, Moses as he wrote it. First of all, that question, who is like you, Israel? Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? And we remember the story of the Bible where here's the smallest group of all of the clans and all of the people of the earth. God chose Israel to be his people. Man, who are you saved by the Lord? Who is the shield of your help? God is your shield. God is the sword of your majesty. And then if that won't do anything for you, Israel, how about the fact that your enemies will cringe before you? That ought to get you excited, Israel. You're gonna tread upon their high places. How blessed, how happy you are. Psalm 112, verse one says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. Proverbs 14, 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. See, they're happy and they're joyful, not because of certain emotions and feelings, but because of what their focus and their delight is in, and therefore giving great reason for gladness. Now, let's take a few moments and let's play the triple triplets, okay? Because if you go on to verse one, you begin to read something beyond just the blessing that comes. There's a reason why there's a blessing. And you'll notice that we have kind of a, a negative, that, that the godly righteous man negatively does not do something before he gets to what he does do. And at the point here is a downward spiral, a digression, you might say, from one state to another to another, and it gets worse and it gets worse. And so taking really three words and descriptions, the author describes, I think, in a very unique fashion, some ways that the godly man rejects things. Notice, first of all, as a matter of fact, I just, in my notes, I put a box, and in that I put three categories. The first category is the word walk, the second category, stand. The third category, sit. Right below each one of those is three others. So we have the triple triplet. Number one, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Second category, he does not stand in the path of sinners. Third, he does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. So you got walk, stand, sit, counsel, path, seat, wicked, sinners, scoffers. It's a very interesting way that the author describes it for us. Now, as you read through these uh, three triplets, there are some cautions that need to be, we need to be aware of, three of them, okay? 
So if you're taking notes, number one, there needs to be a caution in the counsel that is sought. If you're, if you're actually writing notes, you can write the word advice right after that, the word advice. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the godly man, the righteous man, is extremely careful where he finds his advice in life. If you don't remember anything else that I say today, take that one sentence to heart. The godly man is extremely cautious where he gets his advice. The godly man understands, he comprehends that his worldview is, is not shaped by the world around him. He, he doesn't get his, his notes and his understanding of life and functioning from the world around him. He does not seek the counsel of the godless. Catch hold of that. He does not seek the counsel of the godless. His direction comes from a multitude of godly and wise people. That is, he does not get his advice. He doesn't find any kind of direction or any kind of help from those who live according to worldly standards, not biblical standards. Counseling, as you may know, since you have a, a good counseling ministry here, is really the act of telling somebody what they should do or shouldn't do. It's really what they should think by way of a course of action. We're, we're trying to change things in, in counseling. Counseling really involves the mind. Shape the mind, you shape the action. And advice from the ungodly, knowingly or unknowingly, are never lacking. Listen, my friends, you can find the counsel, and many, many even believers are finding their counsel in a number of ways outside of the biblical standards of the Word of God and godly people. For instance, we can easily get our advice and our counsel from human reasoning today and persuasion to uh, perhaps television programs. Do you realize that television shapes people in the advice that they're given? They learn it, they live it, it becomes part of their life. To magazines, to radio, to the internet, to movies. There are an endless communication of what not to do and what to do by those who want nothing to do with God. Amen? You don't sound too convinced. It's all over the place. It was uh, Dr. Warren Wiersbe who once said, and I quote, if Christians start listening to the counsel or advice and plans of the ungodly, they will soon be standing in their way of life and finally will sit right down and agree with them. There's a caution in the counsel and advice that we seek. Second, there's another caution that comes out of this text that really kind of be the second part of this triplet, and that is there's a, uh, a caution in the influence that is around us. You might use the word effect. Those things that affect us by way of influence. Notice that the, the author said he doesn't stand in the way of sinners or the path of sinners. He doesn't travel down the road paved by worldly views. He doesn't pattern his behavior consistently in a lifestyle contrary to biblical values. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 are all about. Do not pattern your life, the Bible tells us, but be transformed. 
See, in this particular case, standing indicates more than walking because what it means is that sooner or later, you have stopped along the way. You have gotten on a path that is not right and you have stopped. It's easy to do sometimes. Some describe this as behavior once the counsel has been received. Again, the author uses the, in a negative tone, the godly man's behavior is not influenced by those around him, but by those who reflect God. You see, the influence of the ungodly is reflected over and over. Psalm 36 verse four says, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Does that read like our 21st century today? You often wonder, are people just laying awake at night trying to figure out ways to be stupid and bad and wicked because it's out there? That, that's almost what he's saying. But it's on a path that is not good. And what we want to make sure is that we're not veering off into that path of the sinner. Not taking part in their actions, not following that same path. Third caution is dwelling in those places that have been established. You might even caution with this word residence. Notice that third phrase. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers. You've moved from walking to standing in a wrong path to now you have sat down. That's what the author is saying. That godly man doesn't do that. He never takes up residence and fellowship with those who ridicule and scorn the Lord in his ways. And here we see the final culmination of walking to standing to a more permanent dwelling. He doesn't find fellowship with the scoffers. I love the old Baptist preacher, J. Vernon McGee, because this is the way he rightly proclaims it. And I could just kind of hear his southern drawl as he brings this home. And I quote, we are told that the third stage is that he sits in the seat of the scornful. The scornful is the atheist. He, is not, he not only denies God, but he exhibits an antagonism and a hatred of God, unquote. It was Thomas Adams in 1614 that said, very whimsically, and I quote, that which a man spits against heaven shall fly back in his own face. Now there's an image for you. Spit against God, it's gonna come back against you sooner or later. Proverbs 21, 24 says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who, who acts with arrogant pride. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, warns us, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. If you walk, if you stand, if you sit with the scoffer sooner or later, your morals will get ruined. The reality is either we take our direction and our advice from the world and its system and thought or we take it from the Lord. Now lest you think that this is just kind of an Old Testament preacher that's just, uh, just getting a little bit wild in his ways, think through the New Testament book of Corinthians and Paul's correction to this group of believers. Chapter six, where there's this example of believers and their lawsuits of one another and where are they going? To a worldly court to get their advice, their direction, and how they should live. Paul says, isn't there at least one? One righteous, godly, wise individual within the local church that can take care of that problem without going out there to get your advice from. 
So it's not just Old Testament. We understand that to be true in our lives today. See, ultimately, this righteous man refuses to align himself with a course that will move him away from the straight path. He's mindful of the steps he takes that can suddenly deter him to total rejection. Let me give you an example of this before we move on into verse two. I think this just hits it on the head to me. You might recognize the name of former evangelist Chuck Templeton. If you don't know Chuck Templeton, you will know his friend, Billy Graham. Chuck Templeton professed faith in Jesus Christ in 1936 and became, at that time, one of the most popular evangelists. 1945, he met Billy Graham. They became friends. They ministered 1946 at the Youth for Christ tour. In 1948, Templeton's life and worldview began to change. He, he began to start walking and then standing in a wrong path and eventually ended up in the third category. Doubts came when he entered Princeton Theological Seminary, should that surprise us. 1957, Chuck Templeton, the once famous evangelist proclaiming the gospel of Christ, publicly declared he was an agnostic. It is noted, and I quote, in his 1996 memoir, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith, Templeton recounted a conversation with Graham in Montreat prior to entering seminary, and I quote this from him. But Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days for a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over a million of years. It's not a matter of speculation, it's a demonstrable fact, unquote, says Templeton. I don't accept that, Billy said, and there are reptile scholars who don't. Well, who are those scholars? I said, that is Templeton, men in conservative Christian colleges? Well, most of them, yes, he said, Billy Graham, but that is not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible, unquote. Now, the story goes on, and Templeton concludes this story with his own words. He says, but Billy, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it, and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. You take that path, guess up where you end up? Exactly where Templeton did, scoffing the name of God, that creation is no longer uh, reputable or uh, uh, acceptable, you can repute it, you can deny it, you can deny anything at that point as a scoffer. See, getting a sharper focus on true happiness will mean being a godly, righteous person that truly understands the danger of following those with a worldly view today. While the negative of that aspect is seen in verse one, you move to verse two, which takes a positive of what the godly man, righteous man does. And I put it this way, number two, what the godly man desires. Notice the author goes on to say, but with that contrasting word as opposed to the previous, his delight, this blessed man, this righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
I love this verse. There's a, a definite correlation, probably more appropriate, a contrast between the godly, righteous man and where he gets his counsel and verse two, where he gets his delight. He gets his delight from this book. All 66 books. These two verses should be seen in stark contrast of what not to do and what to do. The godly man in his understanding is where his true blessings and joy and happiness come from. He perceives his delight and uh, his delight, the things that he desires in, in the word of God. The inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, trustworthy, living word of God. Amen? This is it. The word delight is the word pleasure, the word desire in the Hebrew. And where is it directed? Simply to the word of God. Because it's in the word of God that we find our joy and our happiness, but it's because of our desire to be in the word that we find the true joy is the source of the person who wrote the word and is directing us, and that's to God himself. Now, in his time, spoken primarily as the Pentateuch, but in our day and age, we would say anything that's related to the word of God, that's where our desire should be, that's where our delight should be. Now, I'm gonna ask you some questions, knowing that I ask myself these questions, and I don't know if they'll make you squirm as they make me squirm, but nonetheless, it's the way it goes. I'm up here, you're down there, so I get to ask the questions, right? Number one, what do you desire in life? Number two, what are you passionate about? I mean, what, what is it that drives you? I would ask also, where do you find your pleasure? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your happiness? The vernacular of today is what floats your boat? What works for you? What do you long for? I say it that reason because of this point. Sometimes our desires the things that we delight in can betray us. They may not necessarily come out the way we think. But, not this book. You delight in this book, and the God of this book, you will never be disappointed. You will never be taken the wrong direct direction. Nothing on this earth should bring me more delight than spending time with God in the Word of God. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 read this. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And besides you, God, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Folks, if you're not in this book, you'll never find what the author describes. God has to be the one that you desire more than anything else on the earth because you desire him. And you want to see what he has to say. For the one who desires the word of God and delights in it, there's an inevitable outcome that comes from that, and that is meditation. It becomes second nature. Now, folks, you probably understand this, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not sitting down with your legs crossed, exiting your mind out into the neverlands of cyberspace. Okay? That is not what he's talking about here. Unfortunately, there are groups that teach that, 
And all they're doing is just opening their mind to all sorts of evil. He is talking about running over and over and over in your mind, in your heart, the very words of God that you are reading and memorizing. I trust that you're doing that, not just reading, but you're meditating. I have been meditating on Psalm 1 for a number of months now, and I don't feel like I've come to the, to the final conclusion of all of that it says by meditating upon it. See, the righteous man knows there must be that constant habit regarding the word of God as the rule of his actions and thoughts and everything that happens in every part of the day, and that's where he will sharpen his focus then on true happiness. Now, as we look at this delight that is in the law of the Lord and in that law of meditating day and night, I would like to have you look at five things about the word of God with me. We don't have time to get into a lot more. There are more or in-depth in these five, but I just want you to recount these. Number one, the word of God is to be absorbed. That's his purpose. There are a variety of ways that if you've jumped over to Psalm 119, in all, I believe, 150 different verses that talk about the word of God, you will see it addressed in a number of ways. It'll be addressed as the law. It'll be addressed as the commandments. It'll be addressed as the statutes. It'll be addressed as precepts, as testimonies, as righteous rules. By the way, all of those are used just in the first nine verses of Psalm 119. But it also goes on to talk about, Psalm 119, the truth of the word of God and the word itself. There are other passages in the Bible that call itself the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Gospel, the Sword of the Spirit, truth, the Word of life. The Bible describes itself in a number of different ways, and the author is saying in this law, these commandments, these precepts, the Word of God is where his delight comes from, and he's going to spend time. Where his delight is at? Which, by the way, you will spend time where your pleasures are. Is it the word of God? Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. I will absorb, in other words, your precepts. I'm going to fix my eyes on your ways. How are you going to find your ways in life? Through the meditation of the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous work. Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What do you think about all day? Is it the word of God? Because that's where the righteous man gets his true delight. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you some more questions. What do you absorb your time in? What excites you to the point of running it over and over again in your mind? Is it the terrible things that happened at work or school or that neighbor that continues to bug you day in and day out? Is it the little things that your spouse irritates you with and you run those over in your mind over and over? Is it the word of God? Or is it perhaps the latest sports statistics? Are the Mariners going to make it to the playoffs? Or is it perhaps some show that just keeps running through your mind or or is it some kind of victory or some kind of defeat that just it's there, you, you're absorbing it, you can't get rid of it? Second, the word of God is 
joyous and to be loved. It's not just to be absorbed, it's to be joyous and to be loved. There are a number of passages in the Bible. I'll leave it up to you at times, but I'll just give you a couple. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words are found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Again, Psalm 119, it just filled with them. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I, I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Notice the delight, the love, the meditation go hand in hand together. The word of God is to be joyous, it's to be loved. Third, the word of God is to be studied. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it take up its residence. Let it be permanent in your heart and your mind with all wisdom teaching. I love 2 Timothy 2.15, the old one verse. New American says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. I, I kind of like the old King James. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent, though. That's what it is. Study. Be diligent. Study hard to be approved to God. You will then be a workman that will not be ashamed because if you study and you study hard and you study correctly, you will be able to handle this word correctly. There's so many people that take this and abuse it. They don't know how to, how to really use it. I've studied it. Fourth, the word of God is absolutely essential. We need this book. It's the most important book of all books. That's why it's still the one that still remains. It's the popular, number one, best-selling book. I would probably say at the same time, it's probably the most popular book that sits on a home shelf and doesn't get read. Interesting. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, probably one of my all-time uh, passages I'm meditating on. So someday I want to preach a sermon on this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Talk about a powerful text. This book, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, all of it, is God breathed, came right from the mouth of God, and it will teach us, it will reprove us, it will correct us, it will train us, and we'll be equipped to do the very thing that Ephesians 2.10 says we were created for, and that is good works as Christians. Number five, the word of God is to be trusted. I don't always trust the books I read. Sometimes I question books I read. I don't have to question this book. That's why I can delight in it, because I know its source is going to be right. Psalm 119, verse 42, so I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. I can trust it. That's what the psalmist said. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, the law of the Lord is perfect. Restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right and rejoices the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. Fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. Judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And the author says they are 
more desirable, more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You want something that's sweet, delight, desirable. It's the word of God. So, second view helps us to sharpen our focus on true happiness by understanding what the godly man desires, the word of God, and he spends his time in it. Third, we'll spend a lot of time on the last two, but number three, what the godly man exhibits. Notice verse three. He is like a tree that is firmly planted by the streams of water. It yields its fruit in the season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, whatever he does, he prospers. The godly man is firmly planted by the Lord. This is a tree from wherever it came is now planted by the stream. Somebody had to put it there. That was God. Seems to be a direct result of his stability then in the word of God. He finds this as a righteous, godly man, the true source of fulfilling life like a bounty of flourishing fruit. Here the godly man is strong. He is is firm regardless of what may come. It is in this that he finds true success. It is in this that the author says he will prosper. He is a tree planted by God. He is a stream, or in the vernacular of the day, you might have a cross-reference that says the canals, the canals that flowed through. If you want an image of that, go to the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon had all sorts of canals and all sorts of gardens that were watered well by those canals. That's the image that the author has here. And there's a, a fruitful bounty It cannot help but produce because it has the right nutrients to do that. I love going out and looking at my apple tree whenever I can and just seeing those nice apples that are there. And every day I watch to see which worm gets which apple first. I love to see those apples growing. It's just numerous. I loved it when my Peaches were growing. I had 17 this year, 17 peaches. We only ate nine because the, the ants got the rest. You got a secret, let me know. But He's talking about a tree that is fruitful, not barren, because this person delights in the word of God and depends upon God. And, and his life's going to be prosperous. All that he does, he's going to prosper. Now, folks, don't take that too far. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not that if you, don't have, if you have just a little bit more faith, you can have whatever you want. It's a great Greek word for that, hogwash. It doesn't work that way. This prosperity is not materialistic. Now, God might bless you with material goods, but that's not what you set out for. It's a prosperous life that's promised by God. You will serve him according to his will and his ways and He will bless you, as he started out to say, how blessed is the man, that person. So getting a sharper focus on true happiness is viewed in what the godly man reveals, that of a firm and flourishing life. Lastly, just quickly here, what the godly man contrasts. Notice verses four through six. 
We notice the wicked are not like this. They won't stand in judgment. They can't stand in the congregation or the assembly of the righteous. And then he says, God knows both the righteous and the wicked. See, the godly man walks in a way that's right as opposed to the wicked man who walks in sin and faces judgment. Oh, we're so thankful, aren't we? For the grace of God, for the forgiveness of God, to go into the cross that Jesus died for my sins, that I commit it before him, and if I come before him, confess that before him, I now stand righteous in the eyes of God. I'm declared righteous according to the, to the scripture. But if I don't come to that point and my life ends, I will face judgment, the judgment of God, he says. The godly man has divine approval while the wicked is condemned. And while the wicked man, the Bible says, is like the chaff that, that blows quickly away and perishes, the godly man, he will have a lasting influence. I like to roast coffee. And one of the things I roasted in is a popcorn popper. And I have a little glass funnel there, and at the top I have a screen, wire screen. And when I start roasting that coffee, the chaff starts coming up. If I don't have that screen on, the chaff just starts blowing all over, especially because I do it in the garage, and the garage door is open, any wind comes through, blows that chaff all over the place. That's the image of the wicked. No stability, no lasting influence. Verse 6, he wraps it all up with an antithetical parallelism of the Hebrew, which is simply contrasting the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous, God knows. He's very well aware. The way of the wicked, though, he's very well aware, too. They're going to perish. They're going to perish. And what the godly man contrasts in understanding that is where he gets his true joy and his delight from. Folks, let me wrap it up this way by saying sharpening our focus on true happiness doesn't happen by seeking the pleasures of the world. For the godly righteous man, it will mean rejecting the counsel and direction of the world. It will mean desiring, saturating oneself with the word of God. It will mean exhibiting a fruitful life and standing in direct contrast to the wicked sinfulness that's around us. So that we might be the light and a testimony of the light in a dark world today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word of God. We thank you that it is alive. It is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. It digs deep. And we thank you, Lord, that it is that which we can find delight in. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would be those who would ask you, seek you, to give us that disciplined heart and mind to day by day spend time in the Word of God to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to let it do its work in our hearts, in our lives. May we be a testimony to the world around us that others might see the gospel and come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.